After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Once again, Cameron Maitland is coming back. He's just doing a bunch of red carpet stuff. He's in L.A. right now working on the Indie Spirit Awards. You can watch him interview very fancy people wearing a very snazzy suit on that red carpet on Hollywood Suite. They're also on the YouTube channel, so go check that out because he's a frickin' delight. But for now, I have another frickin' delight. I am very excited. She's an actress. She's a writer. She's a director. She's a producer. She really does it all, and uh, does it all with great panache. Her name is Penny Isinga, and I'm so happy to have her today. Penny, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Thanks. Nice intro. Oh, thank you. I, I try. I do my best. Well, because otherwise people are like, who am I listening to? And I'm like, well, I'm just about to give you someone you're going to need to go look up, because your resume is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and you also kind of came to acting through an interesting route. Can you talk a little bit about your backstory? Oh, yeah, it's true. I came at I kind of came at it later in life, if you want to say that. I was a nurse in the olden days and uh, and then got into uh, what I always say, I jokingly say I got into the dark side, but I, I was in transplantation, so I went into the transplant field with a pharmaceutical company in the immunology business unit, and I learned a ton about business, and that was all great, and that's what I did when we raised kids, and I was acting in doing stage work, you know, throughout that, you know, it was threaded through, but never saw myself as, as jumping in full time into that kind of industry. Um, I thought it might take the joy out of it once it becomes, you know, a really <laughs> serious thing. But in fact, I did. And, and it was, I think the kicker was um, uh, a very close friend of mine passed away, uh, much too young. And it was a real awakening for me. And I think, you know, often when we go through big major shifts in our lives, there's usually a trigger. And, and I would say that was the trigger for me to make, make me sit up and take notice about what I was doing. Am I doing what I, I really feel like I'm quote called to do um and and that was what i did and started to to immerse myself in camera work, which was a brand new thing for me. Now, something that I really love about your work is that you focus predominantly on short films. And uh, we talked to Sandy Summers recently, who also, that was kind of her oeuvre, and she liked to tell stories that way. Um, what about short film speaks to you? Well, I think for me, the trajectory that I was witnessing, you know, in trying to get to the, the, the larger storytelling world, you know, a limited series, which are so popular now, and, and feature work, I felt like I needed to to prove myself as a storyteller and the best way that I could see to do it was to do a series of short films that meant something to me and so that's the direction that I chose to take and I, I think that a lot of people choose to do that rather than jump right into a first feature which you sometimes see when you see students leaving uh, their final year at film school. Maybe it's their final project or something. So that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. But because I didn't go to formal film school, I, I really needed to learn by doing. Uh, there's a the, the first uh, feature that I did. Uh, excuse me. The first short that I did, Wilderness. The the director who was trained at the CFC, uh, the Canadian Film Center, Don Wilkinson, uh, did just a terrific job, and I loved working with her. But I said to her at the end of that experience as a newbie. I said, so what do I do now? Do I go to film school? I really don't know what to do. And she said, oh, oh, God, no, don't do that now. You, you just keep doing what you're doing. Keep learning by doing. And I think it was the best advice she 
could give me. You know, I, th- I thought that was exactly what I needed to do is just keep growing and learning by doing. Now, it's looking like you're at almost 30 credits for your, your work that you've been producing and directing. Is that right? Well, some of it is. I'm executive uh, producing things that I've done have been to help out other filmmakers who are following in the same sort of uh, path where they need to get short films done. And in order to do a union shoot, you need to have a Canadian Media Producers Association recognized producer. And I am a CMPA member. So sometimes I'm, I'm helping them out in that format. Although I'm not a tremendous active participant in their film, uh, I'm just there to, to provide them the assistance and, and also my CMPA number, you know, to help them get their work, their first work done. It's like mentorship by numbers, I understand. Yeah, yeah. And it's the practical thing to do, you know. Now, you've also worked with some seriously heavy hitters. So let's talk a little bit about Martin's Hag, where you had both Sheila McCarthy and Gordon Pinsett for the first time. You got them both again a little bit later. Uh, we've had Sheila on the show before. I'm aiming to get Gordon Pinsett. How did that happen? Yeah, uh, I didn't realize they hadn't worked together before until we were doing Martin's Hag. I just found that kind of shocking, you know, how how long they've both been in the industry and how much work they've both done. They have a tremendous body of work. But when I started to uh, work with Gordon, um, Peter Callahan, who's his son-in-law, came to us um, to talk. I was working with a, a, a group called the Incubator Studio at the time. And the the premise of that group was bring together a group of actors who want to shoot more, to do more work. And uh, Brett Hurd, who's a director, writer in town, um, had more of a classroom setting. But what he wanted to do was, was come up with a premise every eight weeks with a new group of actors. The actors decide, you know, who they will be, what character they will play within that premise. And then at the end of the eight or 10 week period, once the script is done, ends up being, you know, a short film, essentially, uh, we shoot it. And so we, we were, we were learning how to shoot, uh, on the fly and to shoot inexpensively and just being on set a lot, um, was a lot of fun and, and a great learning environment. And the purpose of that was to, in the, in the end, to pitch those ideas to broadcasters. Unfortunately, nothing got picked up. However, it was a tremendous uh, breeding ground for ideas and, um, and and learning how to improve your directing skills. Can I ask how those were shot? Were those digital or were those analog? Uh, those were digital. And so I, that, that's the first half of the story. Then Peter came to us and said, you know, uh, Gordon and I want to pitch an idea again to a broadcaster. Um, and we've heard that you can do things on the cheap. Um, and, uh, so if you, if you wouldn't mind helping us, we'd like to do this teaser trailer because it might be more compelling to show them what our idea is versus just uh, pitching it on paper. So, you know, I drove Gordon back and forth to set and we just had a blast and it, it was so much fun. And I, then we became friends and, and then started working together. So that was probably uh, six seven years ago and he started showing me a lot more of his written material which I had no idea existed and 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 yeah that's how it all transpired so he showed me this lovely story about a guy who creates a a physical presence for his anxiety and in the east coast they call anxiety hag and uh I, I guess it's a celtic term and, and rather than say anxiety, they call it the hag. So I, once I read it and kind of tweaked the story into a short, 
I said, uh, I, I can just completely envision this is Sheila McCarthy. She's got that, from because of her dancing background, she's got this incredible wiry um, presence, you know? Uh, and, and he said, no, no, I, I think she'd be great. So she's a friend of mine, let me call her. So that's how that happened. And then again, we became fast friends and, and I, I want to keep working with her if at all possible. Yeah, well, she's so ethereal, right? I mean, that's why I've heard The Mermaid Singing works is entirely because of her performance, because she's just so pixie-ish and lovely, and and then transferring her into this, like, aggressive form while still being ethereal is a stroke of brilliance. That's very clever. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's She just nailed it. I'm, I'm thrilled. And then you uh, recently worked with both of them again in Night Shoot. How did that one come about? What's the story behind that one? Well, again, we were, you know, I was looking for to get funding for a feature film uh, through Telefilm. That was just three years ago. And, you know, we didn't get funding, which is, you know, normal. It's, it's, I would say that re- rejection uh, or whatever word you want to call it, uh, or maybe not now is a better term. Um, you know, it's, it's just part of the business. And, and I really wanted to get something else done that year. I, I just felt that I wanted to keep directing, you know, he just get that itch. <laughs> and, um, and so I knew that he had this other story that he was really uh, compelled to tell and he had been wanting us to do it. We had applied also to, I think an arts council uh, a couple of years ago and didn't get funding for this for night shoot. And I said, you know, I was watching Sheila McCarthy's something she was directing in the, in one of the North uh, theaters and and I've gone to a couple of things she's directed on stage, and I thought we can we can shoot this whole thing on a stage. We'll just sh- we'll just we don't need a fourth wall. We can just make his apartment on a stage. So we used the um, oh now I've forgotten the name of the the theater we used alumni theater, and it worked out beautifully because this character this character is sort of a an insular happily insular guy who collects all his past wardrobe. He's a one-line actor, and he wants to keep them alive by creating these cool little scenes in his apartment with his, <laughs> these wardrobe pieces. It's a really sweet, charming story. So that's how it all worked. We shot the, um, the whole thing in the theater. There's just such this can-do nature. You're like, yeah, we just got this person together, and we found a theater, and we did it, and we put on a show. You know, it's very Gershwin. I absolutely love it. The film you picked today is uh, also about a lot of can-do-ness and coming together and making things happen. The film itself, the story behind the film, and then the making of the film story, which is also absolutely fascinating. What film did you pick today, Penny? Uh, I picked The Grizzlies. The Grizzlies. We talked about this a little bit uh, in our National Canadian Film Day episode. When did you come across this one? When did you see it? I saw it when it was at the, the Tiff Bell Lightbox, and one of the producers was in attendance. Uh, Miranda de Pensier couldn't be there, and, and nor could any of the actors, because obviously they all live so far north that it was really difficult. But I was so impressed by the film. Uh, I was just <laughs> weeping by the end. But it, it's just such a beautifully design story about the the challenges of living not only in the north but the the long standing issues uh related to you know the residential schools it's very powerful well why don't you walk us through just a little bit of the plot just briefly so people can get an idea of this 
Well, you know, as as often happens, is sometimes you, somebody who who is Caucasian comes into an environment that that is uh, diverse, and um, so now we're talking about the North. But they, we can come in as saviors, thinking, well, we're going to fix this problem, and we're going to bring you some enlightenment. And so this teacher comes into this world of teaching high school, and as is common in the North, a lot of teachers come and go. They have, they have a set period of time that they go in, and they teach, and they leave. So a lot of people in the North, from what I've understood, is they, they don't learn to really sink into and, and expect a lot from that environment because they know the person's going to leave. But this teacher comes in thinking, oh, good, I, I'm actually going to, I really want to work in a private school in Toronto, but this is my, this is what I'm going to do. Got to do pay my dues and get out. And he ends up realizing that just how devastating the environment is that he's walking into and how uh, obviously the, the, the high suicide rate in the north for a whole host of reasons, you know, the most obvious being the longstanding cellular issue of having, you know, uh, parents and grandparents who suffered through, you know, white domination through residential schools in particular. And so they start, he starts, um, once he starts to realize how deep and dark this issue is, he thinks because he's, he's an athlete, he creates a lacrosse team. And at first, you know, the kids are not on site at all, nor is the, the community, but slowly over time, he wins their, their trust by understanding more about them and stop and looking outward rather than inward. And it's just such a powerful story of overcoming um, darkness. It really is. Now, how much do you know about the story behind this, either the making of or the uh, or the actual events that inspired the film? Well, I know that the producers that were there on the day I saw the screening had talked about how long it took them to make. It was something like 10 years because they couldn't, they needed the story to be just right. And obviously to, to, to reflect the community in which they're speaking of. And, and also to gain, um, probably, I'm sure funding was an issue as well. And to work in all honesty with community members. So they they had this, the actors um, go through a sort of a training program and helping them grow and expand if they wanted to be actors, to, to expand within that world and uh, to work with them over months. And I think that's why we saw such compelling um, performances from really non-actors. I, I just was so blown away by a couple of them in particular, how honest a portrayal they had. And I'm sure their careers are, are just going to continue to go forward. It was, it was, it was just tremendous to see how much work and effort went in. So they obviously, they, they knew how important the story was to reflect um, the high suicide rate in the North and it needs to, obviously needs to continue to be addressed but I thought it was a really important marker. I was on the fence about this because when I watched the trailers I was like oh this looks like it's tap dancing on white savior territory let's have a look yeah. and I think the film does have whiffs of that. Uh, there definitely is moments where you're like oh that maybe that point of view could have been more focused on the kids instead of the two white men who happen to be in this film but 
I think overall, the more I've thought about it and the more I've learned about it and what went into the film, the more I'm like, no, nah, they actually did a really good job with the structure and what they have. There's a great article I'd like to point people towards, which was the main source of my research today, uh, from the Globe and Mail called Mistakes and Reconciliation, The Grueling Path to Making the Grizzlies, which really lays out like the 10-year journey of what they did to, to create this. And like you said, to make it as they felt just right and the fact that they had a white writer and a white director as opposed to having um, indigenous directors or writers uh, create this story and how they made sure that the story was being told indigenously. We, we talk so often on this film about letting people tell their own stories and yeah. uh and this is, of course, as you know, based on a, on a true story. This was a real group of kids that started a lacrosse team and the suicide rates in their small town were in like through the roof, terrifying for children, which is a, an epidemic across Indigenous communities. And uh, the, this was one way they were able to, not, it's not that sports saved the day, but they were able to find a sense of purpose and find a sense of community and working together and it gave them something to focus on. And uh, it's not yeah. an easy topic. <laughs> No, it isn't. And I and I ran into Miranda de Pensier uh, in Ottawa last week, and I told her how much I enjoyed the film. And I said, "Was it awkward telling the story, being who you are?" And she said, "I it was." And you know, it's it's it was shot actually several years ago. When you think about how far we've already come since yeah. the film's release, but she she said she said I got to the point where as we got closer to shooting, I I didn't. I, she said to them, I can't do this. I can't do this. And they, and the producer said, no, you have to, you have to do it. And you know, they were the ones who encouraged her to do it. And so she said, I, if, if someone presented this me with this project now, of course she said I wouldn't do it. But she said at that point, they felt that uh, it was, it was okay for me to, and they were giving me their blessing. So she, she said it was an awkward thing by the end of that long journey, but by that point, you know, they sort of realize that, no, no, you, you need to direct this. It's fine. That's why I think this is such an important film for people to look at, because reading about the original journey, because uh, the ESPN came and did like a little 14 minute short video about, look how amazing this uh, this group of kids are from up north and they're playing lacrosse and it saved their town. Heartwarming, beautiful, lovely 14 minutes on a deeply complex subject. Right. Yes. And yes. so, of course, Hollywood starts calling and they're like, we need to make a movie about these kids. And uh, both the producers, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry if I pronounce these incorrectly, I'm sure I will. Uh, Alethea uh, Arnacook Barrel and Stacy Aglock McDonald. They were fielding, and both of them, I believe, actually live in Nunavut. Uh, and one of them is actually from uh, Kugluktuk, uh, where the, the whole film is set. And so they would get these calls from producers, and they were like, Great, look at how much a flight is to a quallet. And if you want to go there, uh, then you can come meet me here and we'll talk about it. And they didn't hear from 90% of them. And uh, when Miranda showed up, she was the only one who, like, bit the bullet, showed up, and was there to try and do the work. And where she herself says her first, like, moment of things she did incorrectly was it didn't even occur to her to hire an Indigenous writer. She immediately was like, who is the best writer out there? Who can I get? Uh, and just thought about white writers. And that was when Graham Yost came on board, who people will know as being a Canadian-American writer of speed as well as on Justified. And he left the project partway through because he was going to work on Justified. But I think a lot of the problematic aspects which just fit so much into what is a very 
very white, very Western narrative of that sports uh, victory film, which we've had around so so much, is kind of the whiff of the the white savior stuff that you do happen to get. Um, from my understanding, Miranda didn't even know what the white savior trope was and needed to be told about it. So learning about how she learned and how she listened and how she grew is just so invaluable. Yes, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot we can learn. And and I think just having a story like that on, you know, on the big screen is really important. I, th- I think it'll educate a lot of people, um, you know, it, it at least move the dial. There is just also such an interesting concept of uh, that we seem to have in Canada of why can't they just or, you know, can it, Canada is a place of prosperity. Why isn't there enough for everybody? Um films like this which are telling these kinds of stories you actually get to see oh no there are parts of Canada that are very similar to developing nations they don't have access to clean water they have very serious issues that aren't being addressed and to create these narratives for them um, with incredibly charming child cast like you said every single one of them is like every single one of them is a star easily put them in any other show and they're going to be fantastic and then old standby wonderful uh, character actors like Tantu Cardinal uh, and Will Sasso and all of a sudden you're able to to have these accessibility points where you can be like, oh, that's actually what that looks like. This is all based on real things. And yes. suddenly you start to be able to ask questions and see the world in a different way. Yeah. And and this whole notion of, you know, oh, well, why don't they just move to a city? Like, why do they have to live there? Yeah. And, and you think, okay, well, that's, that is not the solution. Uh, the, the one, at one point when the, the young girl, um, one of the actors in it was just lovely and she's, she was helping with the coaching and she said, you know, uh, to the coach, you, you, you only see things right here. And she holds her hand right up to his face. And she said, here we see we, and we love the land because we can see the whole sky. Like they can see so much bigger and so much broader. And I just thought that was such a beautiful verbal and visual, you know, to capture the difference between only seeing what's right in front of your face versus having a much big, broader view of the world. Now, as you said, you saw this at TIFF in 2018. This was a special presentation of it. What was the sensation? What was the conversation around it at that time? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember there being uh, anything that was um, that was challenging. I think it was such an emotional it's such an emotional film. And sometimes, as you know, when you go to a, a, a film festival or you know that there's, a, there's going to be representation there from the film and the expectation there's going to be a Q&A afterwards, people at least will come, you know, thinking, OK, I want to have some I have some questions. But I, I was just so gobsmacked at the end. I, I don't think I could have asked a question. Because it is such an incredible story of what happened to these kids and uh, to find out subsequently what happened to the community where they got a number of other kinds of sports activities going. They got a community center. Um, the suicide rate went down. And it's, again, not because of sports. It's about a sense of purpose. It's about a sense of community and engagement. Um, and when you start to engage, especially the youth, ha- and when they're mired in so many other complicated issues, uh, that can give them a lot more hope of what is what's possible in the world and the the sense of mentorship as well and the um the two producers also have set up a large film mentorship as well uh up north now so we're going to be seeing a lot more film it's very similar to what uh, zachary canook has done as well and and you know and i i feel like there we just keep we need more film and we and uh, of, of that quality and just more storytelling from the indigenous population so i'm really Looking forward to seeing even more work come out. I mean, there's already a lot, but there, there certainly needs to be a lot more. 
and uh, I think it's important. We need to work through it, and uh, as a, as a country, and take responsibility for w- what was done to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families. And the other thing we should say too is that we're kind of talking about this movie like it's a bummer. It's not a bummer. It's actually <laughs> it's actually really charming and really there's lots of really lovely moments. There's lots of really funny moments. Like I said, the kids are a blast. Every single one of them is a star. They're funny. They're lovely. Um, they show their uh, they show their hearts on their sleeves in every moment. You're really actively engaged with them. And I would watch I'd watch a movie just with those kids. Nobody else. Just give them the, a camera and let it go. Well, it's it really is a, a, a triumphant film by the end, which which is so awesome. Uh, I watched it again this week because I thought, oh yeah, we're going to be talking about that. I should revisit that and see, you know, what the the, the specific moments were uh, that I loved. And I I love seeing film that that obviously I loved the first time. Seeing a, a, a film more than once because there's so much more you pick up the second and third time for sure. Well, now is the perfect time to talk about favorite moments. What is one of your favorite moments, Penny? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I, I love that one with the, the girl holding up her hand to his face. You know, you, you only see this far. Um, I, I loved um, the relationship between the, the two brothers, you know, that the one brother was taking care of his younger brother. And it was just such a lovely moment when the, the, the younger brother can't go to sleep and, and uh, the parents are just absent. And so he he says, oh, sing to me. No, I don't want to sing to you. Like, you know, you can just imagine a teenage boy. And so he sings to him this lovely indigenous song. And it's, I don't even know what he's saying, but you could just tell how endeared, like how much they loved each other and how much responsibility he felt over his younger brother. Um, uh, I, I loved how, uh, how, how the camaraderie between uh, the, the boys as they got and the one girl who's on the team how they got closer to re- their their dream of, of realizing they were going to go to the to the big competition and how bonded they became because of that you know there's so few times in life where we actually feel that sense of camaraderie if you're not a team sport player I guess the next best thing would be if you you do a theatrical performance together because you're, you're part of a group um, often even on film sometimes you're you're doing a part with one other person and you're not really seeing the, the whole film until it's released so those those times when you can see people actually bonding together as a group it's so there's nothing like it <laughs> I'm there with you those training montages delighted me to no end they're also to uh, Miranda's credit they are very beautiful and they're a lot of fun and like how do you shoot all of these kids who you can't really tell who they are because of all the equipment and still give them personality and make it fun so that you can follow along with them I, I really give credit to her in those moments it's pretty spectacular yeah yeah beautiful yeah. well we are at the end of the episode Penny so this is the part where you get to tell people how they can find you and your work. Uh, yes, it's Penny Izinga, and my last name is spelled kind of like Eisenhower, E-I-Z-E-N-G-A, and uh, the production company I have is called Dog Eared, Dog Eared Productions, because I love dogs, for one, and I also turn down the pages of a lot of my books. I dog ear them and write in the margins and do all those things that they told you you shouldn't do when you were growing up and treating books with dignity, but I do. You would be my sister's nemesis. She gets so mad at me when I do that to my books. No, I think they're like your good dishes. They're meant to be used. Exactly, exactly. Don't save the silverware for uh, for the guests. Use it all the time. I hear you. Yep. I want to give a brief shout out to uh, Michelle DeLisandro Hat, who connected me with 
Penny. Uh, we've had her on the show before talking about Rhymes for Young Ghouls, another excellent film. Uh, she is the head of Black Lab Film Company because, of course, she is. We're just talking about dogs. Uh, and her short film, uh, Brave Little Army, has been just tearing it up on the festival circuit. And so I highly recommend going out and checking out her and her work because she's really something special. Um, and then for me, you can find me on the Twitters at Liz Shrimpton. That's the masculine Liz Shrimpton over there. And find the show at RCM Pod on Twitter as well. We also have a Patreon. If you feel like we're worth a couple bucks a month, we would appreciate it. It helps us keep the show going. There are expenses. Uh, and uh, you can check us out on Patreon at RCM Pod. Penny, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You're just a, a, a real go-getter. I love it. I love your Jeep. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Let's go get a moose head. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.